This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands. They are the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. So we're just over halfway through this fascinating human nature lecture series and which we proudly present in collaboration with our five major university partners who enable us to bring academic scholars in the environmental humanities from around Australia and the world to our audiences. So having viewed the capturing nature, I think you really do get a sense of how the past and the future intersect at the museum and where our understanding here is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists by our exhibitions and by events like this very important human nature lecture series through which we strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture and the natural environment. And in doing so, promote understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges in our region, including of course climate change and the assertion of cultural identity. So tonight we have a very special guest that we're delighted to welcome. Macarena Gomez-Barris, who is Professor and Chairperson of Social Science and Cultural Studies at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. To introduce her and her keenly anticipated presentation, The, Occup the Occupied Forest, I'd like to call on Associate Professor Juan Francisco Salazar of the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at Western Sydney University. He's an anthropologist and filmmaker and is currently Research Director of the Institute for Culture and Society and he'll be gracing the human nature stage next month. So please welcome now with me, Juan Francisco Salazar. Thank you very much, Sue, and thank you to the Australian Museum for hosting us all in this very exact, uh, exciting lecture series for the last uh, 18 months. Thank you to all of you for coming along on this beautiful rainy night of, in Sydney. We were talking with Macarena before we came in, um, and I remember that cheesy song from the 90s, I'm only happy when it rains, so it's lovely to uh, have a rainy uh, night for Macarena. And we're delighted to be hosting Macarena Gomez-Barris, uh, who arrived from New York, New York this morning. Um, so we are very thankful for the effort of traveling for over 24 hours and being with us tonight. As Sue was saying, Macarena is the chairperson of the Department of Social Science and Cultural Studies at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and she's the founder and director of the Global South Center, a very exciting place uh, with an interest in aesthetic praxis and experimental forms of social living. And Macarena's work is very exciting, and many of us here in Sydney have been following her work for some years. And that work has focused on a range of very important topics and themes, including a rethinking of the notion of the Anthropocene, and she has been um, inviting us all to think about the notion of the colonial Anthropocene, and also questions about cultural memory, inequality, and very interest interestingly, about race, queer theory, and decolonial theory. Her latest two books are most thought-provoking and beautif beautifully written. One is Beyond the Pink Tide, Art and Politics in the Americas, 2018, and the other one, The Extractive Zone, Social Ecologies and Decolonial Perspectives in 2017. 
In these two works, she invites new thinking and debate on how climate change cannot be thought of or engaged with outside of the history of and present of colonialism. She writes about how the destruction of worlds, particularly indigenous worlds in the Americas, but not only, is the operating principle of colonialism, and I'm sure she would agree if um, we also talk about the coloniality of power to turn to the term by Aníbal Quijano, the, the very well-known um, Peruvian theorist and sociologist. The other interesting notion in her work, besides the colonial Anthropocene, is uh, the extractive gaze or the extractive viewpoint that she develops in her beautiful work, The Extractive Zone. In that work, she brings into visibility the political aesthetics and performative practices that emerge in opposition, not only to the devastating effects of extractive capital, but also to the form by which neoliberalism as an ideology and as a practice has over the past four decades normalized what she calls an extractive viewpoint, which reduces the representation of living things and entities to commodities and legitimizes the power of the state to oversee the management of nature from above, so a gaze from above. On that note, welcome Macarena to Sydney and to the Human Nature Environmental Humanities Lecture Series, and we're delighted that you're here with us. So good evening, how's everyone doing? Thank you for coming out tonight on this rainy night. I'm excited to be here. If, I, if there's a glitch at any moment, it's my jet lag, so excuse me. Um, but I jumped in some cold water this morning and hopefully, you know, um, I definitely feel animated to be here and this is a beautiful setting. So thank you for the invitation. Um, thank you, Juan Francisco Salazar, for that beautiful introduction, and to Sue Saxon um, and the rest of the team for hosting me. To Scott, is that correct? Um, always thank your techie person, um, and Estrita Neymanes for the original invitation to be here. So um, today I want to talk with you about a couple of different um, books, ideas, extensions of work that I've been thinking about, and hopefully open a conversation as well, because I do believe we're in a moment of deep, uh, we know, not just I believe, we know there's evidence we're in a moment of deep political environmental crisis. I think it's important in these kind of formats not to just be, um, you know, unilateral about it, but actually to create spaces for dialogue. So I hope we'll have a flushed out time for Q&A um, and engagement from you all. So in my talk, I really want to outline today the importance of the forest and really think about the forest not only as a frontier uh, and what I'm calling an extractive zone that powers capitalism, but as a geography that's long been occupied, right? In the era of climate change, it's been proven that protecting tropical forest is among the quickest and most affordable ways to decrease carbon emissions. And we know, of course, uh, this is nothing new, but from a range of studies and disciplines that standing forests contribute to food, water, health, energy, human safety, and biological diversity. We also know that forests are occupied by a scientific gaze, by technocratic management, by settler colonial laws, and by the deepening encroachment of state corporate alliances that clear-cut forests upon indigenous territories. And 
if you've been paying attention, you also know that there's a tree genre that is re-emerging, right? A spate of recent books on forests and their behavior in the aftermath of clearing have described the living forest as much more than a historical artifact of human representation. We know that the forest, in fact, possesses its own logics, right? It interacts as a system in concert with the atmosphere, the soils, the sun, the trees, um, other trees, and within non-human arrangements. But in many of these books, and this is the argument I want to pose here, it seems as if they're well-meaning forest rangers in the mix, right? Or critical anthropologists, and they're the ones that are the only ones who truly understand the forest. And I guess my question is, what about indigenous peoples who live there? Where are they in these narratives? So how to kind of think about aboriginal global indigenous peoples and write them back in? We often less think much less about who lives in the forest, who maintains it, who maintains its biodiversity, or, who th or, or also thinking about the forest as a space of social movement. I know there's some professors of social movement in the audience. What does it mean to think about the forest as a site of social movement um, and also of artistic practices? So by invoking the term occupied forest, I want to bring forward the idea that forests themselves are territories of struggle over biodiversity. And they're literally occupied as territories of theft and also of bereavement. And I'll kind of make that argument today about how the forest itself is not to be emptied out of its kind of human affect in relationship to it as a site of witness, potentially, uh, an, of clear-cutting. So these are the spaces that are filled with the long hand of the corporation and the state. But for my own kind of ecological memories, I grew up and spent a lot of time in the forest. And I spent time in forests in Northern California. I spent time in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, and I've also spent times in the places I'm going to talk about today. And thinking uh, with and studying and uh, working alongside indigenous peoples to think about what the forest does and does not do in terms of representation. Okay, So today, I want to think very specifically from the Southern Hemisphere. I know we are also located in the Southern Hemisphere across the Pacific in the trans-Pacific space and from the Global South, el sur global, especially within South America, Latin America. Given that the consequences of forest clearing and monocultural are disproportional, writing colonialism back in into the long arc of the war against the earth is essential to our scholarship and activism. So how do we narrate that long war? What is that long war? What's the texture of that long war? How would we describe that? I'd also want us to consider the non-degradable impact of the refuse, right, of the war against the earth. And as Juan mentioned, it's important to think about how to track colonialism or the coloniality of power in this context or the matrix of colonialism. Lots of ways to describe that, but basically to think about a much longer arc of coloniality, to make visible how the planet and local human and non-human communities are dramatically reshaped by uh, the war against the earth in the foreseeable future. So just to give you a sense of where I'm going then, I'm going to outline in three parts um, the kind of condition of the colonial modern forest. 
So the first piece is really to think about the tree, its representation, to locate you in a series of important literatures around this, and then also to talk a little bit about the research I did in the book, The Extractive Zone. Next, I want to turn to the work of Francisco Wichegueo, a Mapuche filmmaker and artist who I think is quite central to understanding kind of connect connectivity and um, a way to think about not only of Gaia, say, but a way to think about kind of parallel universes in the mourning of the ancestors. Uh, and we'll, I'll show you some of that work. I'm not sure if people are familiar with the film The Law of the Forest. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that today, but I would, um, you know, if you're interested, I can give you more references of Ursula Berman's and Paulo Tavares's work. This also becomes another chronicle for thinking about geographies of contemporary occupation and how to archive the future, and I'll describe what I mean. Usually we think of an archive as kind of past or present oriented, but how to scramble that kind of timescape of, of the archive itself in relationship to land. So that, that'll be the second part. And then the third part, I want to just really think through um, the question of land recuperation. What does it mean to recuperate land? What does it mean in this moment of re indigenous resurgence to think about anti-extractive activisms? Now that's a mouthful. It's a mouthful in English, it's a mouthful in Spanish, but I think we need that terminology of the anti-extractive organizing and activisms to help us there. Um, I also want to suggest that part of the work I'm doing is within a kind of decolonial praxis um, and thinking through the art of decolonization. Now, we have to be careful with this terminology because as you've noticed, decolonization is a kind of overused term at this point without a lot of specificity, right? So I kind of want to think with um, the work of Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang. Uh, if you haven't read that piece, you can get it online very easily. It's a PDF. It's Tuck and Wayne's work, uh, you know, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, where they really try to think through the idea of dispossession and tied into land. So if we're not thinking about land, what does it mean to use the term decolonize or decolonization? So that's part of the practices that I'm going to talk about today in relationship to indigeneity, connect it to grounded spaces that are also sometimes spaces of Afro-descendant peoples throughout the Americas. Um, so the question I'm really interested in is what are these practices of refusal, what are these forms of decolonization, and how can we think through uh, non-indigenous spaces, myself as a light-skinned, mestiza, uh, queer woman located in the U.S., originally from Chile, and be in relationship to these spaces that I study and, and forms of solidarity as well. So one of those ways, I think, is through a practice of citation and thinking through the work of Kyle White that you may or may not be familiar with. One of the things that Kyle White does is to introduce us to this idea um, of anthropogenic climate change as being an intensification rather than a new condition of environmental change that's imposed on indigenous peoples by coloniality. So the centering here is of the ind indigenous condition that it precedes the kind of current urgency of the idea that there'll be a kind of global moment of um, dystopia, right? So that first point is, is pretty essential. The second thing that Kyle White points us to is how to think about renewed indigenous knowledge and traditional forms of ecology. And I think in Australia, the kind of um, ongoing conversation around indigeneity is really, really important to think from a space of quote-unquote develop or um, 
overdevelopment, say, in the global south and what it means to have those conversations here, but also to bring together indigenous communities, as Kyle White says, to strengthen their own self-determination in their planning for climate change. So again, not thinking um, that land and water defense is a new strategy, but putting it in the context of a much longer genealogy of essential practices. And then third, this idea of indigenous peoples um, thinking about climate change futures from their perspectives, right? What are these deep collective histories? What does it mean to adapt to environmental change? What can we learn from these environmental adaptations? And what are the ways in which these societies must reckon with the disruptions of historic and ongoing practices of colonialism, capitalism, and industrialization? So there's nothing that new there, but I wanted to at least create a baseline through Kyle White's work, because I think he's, what he's trying to suggest is how important and how much we have to pay attention in this moment to indigeneity. So hopefully for a lot of you that's not new information, but certainly um, I think quite essential. So what are we thinking about here? So how to think about the tree and extractive zones. So in my book, I really was interested in um, what it means over the past 40 years to think about something like intensified extractivism. Companies like the United States, Canada, China, uh, lots of state-led initiatives in terms of increased theft upon territories, right? Um, in the Americas in the last 10 years, there's an experience of what Eduardo Galeano, the great Uruguayan writer, called the open veins of Latin America with a kind of new intensification that's accompanied by militarism in the Americas. So that's what I mean by the extractive zone. And here I'm really thinking about the effects of fracking, of hydroelectricity, of mining, of tourism. And I talk a lot not just of, about tourism writ large, but also spiritual tourism. So how the indigenous body itself becomes a, a site of supposed wisdom that becomes extracted upon, right? Petroleum extraction, forest monoculture. So not just the ransacking of territories, but a direct expression of anti-indigenous and anti-black violence through dispossession. So here, as I mentioned, policing and militarization, um, as you'll notice in, in some of the examples, are pretty central. So put simply, extractivism reveals the inverse relationship between wealth and resource-rich spaces of primary non-renewal resources in the global south. Um, a lot of scholars have dubbed this the resource curse, right? The problem of having many, many resources, Nigeria, Africa, uh, Kuwait, you can basically map global histories of war and imperialism in relationship to resource extraction. So in my book, I'm interested in five particular regions to show how ecocide, genocide, and feminicide are actually intimately linked. So we often think about these things as separate, but how could we think about these three linkages between ecocide, feminicide, and genocide um, as processes of state, corporate, and military violence, and that they have an origin point in franchise and settler colonialism. And I think it's really important to note that a lot of the early scholarship on what is now a pretty flushed out settler colonial studies um, actually started here in Australia. So that's an important kind of contribution to thinking about indigeneity, right? Um, it makes sense that it started here, but I just want to note that um, there's a journal, et cetera, and the work of Patrick Wolf and, and others. The spaces that I study in particular are the petroleum industry, um, 
in the Yasuní area in eastern Ecuador, upon Quechua territories, spiritual tourism in the Sacred Valley of Peru, upon Quero and Aymara territories, hydroelectricity in Cauca, Col Colombia, upon Mestiza, Mestiza X in indigenous territories, pine plantations, which I'll talk about some today, um, the Mapuche and Pehuenche, Hueliche territories, and silver and tin mining contexts of highlands, Bolivia, Quechua, and Aymara. And one of the things I'm doing, it is ambitious, but I believe that we're in a moment where we need to think comparatively, right? We need to look across strategies. We need to look beyond a single nation state. We need to think intra-regionally. So what it means to think at the level of geography in terms of space and time coordinates, for me it made a lot of sense to compare across a number of regions. So we have to now turn a little to the kind of European continental tradition and think with Deleuze and Guattari, since they have considered this metaphor, the idea, the symbol of the tree. Um, so the tree, you know, in terms of the history of ideas, is really a, a kind of representative of thought processes themselves, right? So in 1987, these authors famously wrote uh, in A Thousand Plateaus, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, that, quote, many people have a tree growing in their heads, but the brain itself is much more a grass than a tree, end quote. And that kind of, quote, led to a number of theorizations. Um, in the same work, Deleuze and Guattari discuss how, quote, now there is no doubt that trees are planted in our head, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge, etc. The whole world demands roots. Power is always arborescent, end quote. So in relation here to the vertical structure of the organization of knowledge, they're making a statement about how there are a few disciplines that don't go through what they call the schema of arborescence, okay? So Deleuze and Guattari argue here for a kind of deterritorialization de of the social strata, um, moving away from homogeneity. And I set that up um, not because this is going to be a talk about capitalism and schizophrenia and Deleuze and Guattari, but I wanted to show here that there's a long arc of social theory and critical theory, meaning making and representation, that are sometimes dependent upon a kind of, uh, a kind of unmoored relationship to trees, right, or to the tree, and certain theoretical claims um, without attending to specific sites of occurrence that I'd like to do today. So the native tree falls out of this kind of genealogy. It's not only a metaphor of the organization of knowledge or of psychoanalytic cognition, but of living, right? So how can we think of the native tree? And how is that an interconnected form of life that's under attack since the onset of colonial capitalism? And of course, we can measure this back to the ice cores and um, that date back in, uh, to the 15th century when you see by 1610 the impact of deforestation in the Americas. So, here what I'm trying to say is that what a thousand plateaus presume is that the metaphor of the tree returns us to a hierarchical tree, right? A hierarchical center. All of the branches of the tree emerge from the locus of the trunk and depend upon the structure of roots. For instance, the hierarchies of disciplines and subdisciplines or in relationship to the organization of knowing itself. In the place of the tree, and we, here's the movement out to other kinds of forms of thought, right? 
we then get the rhizome. That's what these authors offer us, um, right? Where the blade of grass relationally reaches out as a metaphor for knowledge that thrives on lateral connections and that lacks a point of origin. So we move from the tree to the rhizome uh, as that becomes part of Glissant's theorization in his Poetics of Relation that many authors are really working deeply with this idea of the Poetics of Relation, which is really important. I'm trying to question this whole kind of genealogy and consider why have we made this movement, right? Um, so for me, what would it mean if we were to begin with the tree of knowledge from a different gene genealogical story? one that was not only concerned with disciplinary knowledge, but that instead was grounded within submerged perspectives or southern theory, okay? So um, closer to home, we might consider the work of the critical sociologist. Do people know Raywin Connell's work? How many of you know this work? Can you raise your hands? A few of you. Okay, great. So this contribution, which is quite important and often gets left out of the idea of Southern theory, okay, um, which is really how to include plurality, how to think beyond a Eurocentric canon, how to think with social dynamics, global dynamics of knowledge. And this becomes, I think, really important in considering the kind of dominance of certain European traditions, right, um, in relationship to knowledge production. So. For me, this is part of the work that I'm interested in. How can we proliferate forms of knowledge? How do we think about things that fall out, say, of an urban global north view? So also, as I'm talking about forests, maybe some of you know this work. Um, and if you don't, I highly recommend it, How Forests Think Toward an anthropo the Anthropology Beyond the Human. And here again, what I'm doing is trying to center, right, a southern view, a southern genealogy, another way to think about forests that doesn't pass through a kind of well-known, well-trotted um, uh, uh, Eurocentric genealogy. So this is the work of Eduardo Cohen. Uh, like my own work, Cohen writes about eastern Ecuador, and he shows how the indigenous Quichua and the many creatures of the forest inhabit one of the world's most complex ecosystems. What How Forest Think does is address the pluralistic and the unexpected modes of the living world that cannot be reduced to human representation or to moral solutions, which often is the way in which we think of the Anthropocene, right, that there's just uh, a moral solution here or other forms of reductionism. So digging more deeply into the work, what Cohn does is raise the work uh, in insights of Brazilian anthropology and something called perspectivism. And as he states himself, quote, I use the insights thus gained to rethink our assumptions about the nature of representation and I explore how this rethinking changes our anthropological concepts. I call this approach an anthropology beyond the human, end quote. So this is what I'm after, a kind of anthropology beyond the human, right, that seizes the representation of the natural world, that it thinks about its relationship to the non-human as central to the project of pluralistic meaning. Um, these may be, for some of you, familiar insights uh, in the environmental humanities, but what I think he's doing is actually creating the basis for us for a new kind of forest gnosis, a new kind of forest methodology, another way to think about the forest itself, right? 
So um, I'm not going to go too much into Cohn's work, but I do want to suggest that this point of departure is radically a non-human centric one. And it constructs the category of human as a not only a racial category, but thinks with the tree and the forest as repossessable. Okay, so what does it mean to repossess the metaphor then of the tree, to take it back as it were? And this is work that is not, uh, it's translated here, but most of the work is not translated. Uh, we were talking earlier with a couple of us, the meaning of translation, how that circulates in particular ways. And I would just like to draw your attention to the work of Umberta Maturana and Francisco Varela. Um, what they did was theorize alternative modes of perception, and they did that also in 1984. This was three years before Deleuze and Guattari. In uh, El Arbol del Conocimiento, the Tree of Knowledge. What they do is do a profound dive and deal very complexly with human and non human predicament of no, no future as presented to us by extractive capitalism. But they do it by inserting themselves in the forest, right? And they go in the Bio Bio region in southern Chile that I'm going to show you images from in, in a minute. Uh, where the ancient Bewen tree, uh, the sacred tree to the Mapuches, served as the model for them to map the human humanetics and forms of perception. So then it's a different tree that we begin with. It's a sacred tree, the Bewen, that's the center of Mapuche life. What does it mean to begin with that tree and then extrapolate? And I would say that Maturana and Francisco Varela is a really important starting point for that project. Of many aspects of the work that I might highlight, um, a signature insight is a concern for all organisms as constitutively and autonomously reproducing circuits of living systems. So these systems are both autonomous um, and later gives way actually to the ones and zero, zeros and systems for computational um, aesthetics, which is really interesting. Uh, part of I don't know if you know this, but kind of the paradigm of Allende, um, then later the kind of work done by Maturana and Varela, some of it lays a groundwork for computational um, connections later. But one of the things I want to highlight here is their invitation to openness and to reflection and what it means to open up a kind of crucial nexus point of perception. Um, for Maturana and Varela, thought is never far from the embodied act of thinking, right? That requires representation, so it also requires language. It's not of a second order or epiphenomenal of the living world, but actually constitutive of it and interlinked to affective responses of human activity. So here I would just suggest that we can't see how they're theorizing outside of the sociality of cognition of from their observations in southern Chile. So here there's a kind of piece that I want to highlight that's about interrelationality between the human and the non-human world. And also the importance that they stress of experimenting and experimenting with indigenous cultural production. So this is very different again than the kind of view that we get again of either hierarchies of knowledge, verticality, they're much more about the horizontal, but they're not thinking in rhizomes. Here they're thinking again with the tree, its roots and all its parts. So what does it mean to actually do that? Part of the, what I want to do is actually think about uh, occupation and relationship to this work. 
One of the things they say is we must realize that together we bring about, through our coordination of actions, a world that constitutes language and emotion through the conspicuous or unconscious realization of our desires. The world depends on our desires, not on our reason. So you can see there how they're moving away from a kind of merely kind of uh, rationally organized uh, way of thinking. So how to apply this work? I know it's been pretty abstract up until now. I've brought in a lot of different authors that I think we should be thinking with, not just the popular literature and genres on the forest, but really trying to bring another kind of um, textual and citational practice to the foreground. How do we apply that? What do we do with that information? How do we, where do we go from, from here? So for me, this is about the kind of work that I want to show you, um, and especially in relationship to the kind of grounded uh, political and social realities of southern Chile. And for those of you who don't know, you may be more familiar with Chiapas' example and the example of the EZLN and the Zapatistas and the uprising in um, southern uh, Mexico in relationship to extractivist practices and a long history of colonialism. And you may not know what's happening in southern Chile. Well, uh, as you, you know, um, is important to think about is these are territories that are crisscrossed, right, uh, by Walmapu or Mapuche, Pehuenche, Hueliche original territories, and they exceed, of course, the original container of the liberal and republican nation state. So Walmapu itself is a kind of counter-mapping or a different kind of mapping or pre-mapping to the colonial mapping, right? In this southern geography, then, the ancestral tree that I mentioned very briefly already, the monkey puzzle tree, I don't know if you have them here around. Thank you for letting me know that. Um, in uh, the uh, Aracania Pehuen tree, right, that had been brought all over the world because of its interesting um, kind of root system and, and also its branches, they've been almost all but eradicated in southern Chile, and they're replaced now by radius pine and eucalyptus forests. So what happened was um, land enclosures uh, in the 19th century first took place through the inv invitation of European settlement uh, from Poland, Italy, Germany, and Sweden through selective immigration laws. And that led way to the kind of domination of this particular lands landscape. And it also took place through um, a war called the occupation of Araucania. And this is the image that actually started a lot of my research. I found it while I was doing research on the disappeared uh, mothers of the, of the disappeared in, in Chile and Argentina. And I didn't quite know what to do with this image of women and children who were basically survived a genocide um, of the occupation of Aracania, um, a military operation that uh, kind of produced this haunting image of survivors and prompted my project. So really to consider the kind of occupied forest, we have to think from this moment or even a couple decades mo uh, earlier um, to this present moment to think about a long-term and ongoing uh, permanent war and condition against uh, indigenous peoples. Um, so this longer arc in history of war is definitely at the foreground of what I'm interested in talking with you and sharing with you today. Mapuche filmmaker, Francisco Wichenkeo's 32-minute independent film, Mancedni Pemwa, uh, which actually literally means the current dystopic nightmare, uh, draws attention to what's going on in the southern territories of Chile. 
And this, of course, is a nightmare that stretches from the colonial endeavor to the Republican nation state moment through neoliberalism and into the current monocultural condition. Uh, this bad dream, as he calls it in Mapuzungun, is one interpretation of his uh, kind of use of the term in the title. And Wichekeo's filmic perspective here combines elements of reenactment, of experimentality, of non sequitur edits, of long takes of performance art, of footage from other documentary films. The Mapuche world here can be accessed through visual and sound bridges that connect to the realm of the supernatural. It is also conjured through the use of the elements of fire, of earth, of the land, of air, the wind, and water. And all of these become a kind of symbolic anchor for a new sensorium and imaginary that combines indigenous practice with state terror. So what I want to do is show you um, just a, a piece of the opening of the film. Uh, you know, think about what you're seeing there. We can talk about it later. I'll talk a little bit after I show you the clip. Um, not many audiences have seen this. When he screened it himself, it was quite a small audience. So. Part of the work I believe I'm doing is also trying to circulate what is a powerful document, experimental document.
Kami akan menjawab seperti ini Suara semaluan Alam selimun Wan tegura dan kade Dia menikul Kodibu di kaki Kata yang lewat kesan Kali kionnya ini so I'd never played it that loud before. Um, and I think there's something about the confused space that actually is really important to hear it that loud. It produces a discomfort, kind of an embodied discomfort. So what it means sonically to actually have to sit through that, that space, right? Of course, what he's doing here is visualizing the radius pine and eucalyptus plantations themselves and kind of conjuring the vastness of these monocultural pine plantations um, in the Bio Bio region. The camera tracks through row after row of this kind of uh, strange voice uh, over as the, the voiceover echoes in the background. And here it's really the ancestors, ancestors mourning because they can't find the trees that anchor in their knowledge, right? So there's no way to, to kind of find, there's this per permanent search for and lack of finding um, cultural anchors for cultural memory. But what is startling is also the poem here that is rife with Mapuche symbolism and the director's take on recent political events. Y me varen mis hermanos, la cruz, esa maldición, el fuego que se alimenta de todos nuestros muertes. Tú tienes el miedo de mi morena conciencia, porque tu riqueza es mi muerte. Con pena del árbol secándose al sol, nos afebramos en el pasado. Pasos marcados en las cenizas sobre las cenizas. Llora tu sangre sobre tu sangre. Los ancianos mueren solos. Roble guacho, laurel solitario. Pehuen, extendido. Pinos, 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 pinos. Como llora el viento ancleto. Como cuentan sus millones. Pinos, 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 pinos. And they imprison my brothers, the cross, that curse the fire that feeds all of our dead. You have the fear that is my brown conscious because your richness is my death. With the fear of the tree drying in the sun, we are interwoven with the past. Steps that are marked by the ash layered with ash, the elders die alone. Your blood cries layered over blood, rovel wacho, solitary laurel, extinguished, extinct, pewen, pine, 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 how the burning plain wind cries, how they count their millions. So here, what Wichakeo is doing is actually narrating through the figure of the machi, the figure of the um, uh, woman who is the center of Mapuche life, and you'll see images of her in a minute. But the film itself is a, a confused space, uh, a world turned upside down, a pachacuti space, a dystopic world, right? Um, the blocked views, the partial and opaque views are all necessary to kind of producing this sense of confusion. Now, I'd hardly say that this is easy viewing or you know blockbuster kind of filmmaking, right? This is about material that's difficult. Um, technically, the quality is low resolution and the imagery is hard to discern or even understand. But for me, the more I viewed the film, the entire film that you can see on Vimeo, although it's been, uh, his site has been crashed and re-uploaded several times, um, the more obsessed I've actually become with this film itself. I'm concerned that the film actually only uh, screened in public once, 
part of what Chegueo's point is to shoo the capitalist logic of circulation for film, right? Uh, he wasn't bothered by the fact, say, that its world premiere in Valdivia, there were only five people in the audience um, in 2011, uh, 2014. As he put it to me, quote, the film was made to illuminate to Mabuches of the future the terrible conditions that we live through now. I use the symbolic language of our ancestors to help us shape, live, and act in the world as if occupation had cared about what it ravages." End quote. So he gives us these scenes of charred landscapes and reoccurring symbols of fire as an anti-colonial weapon because indeed part of the work that Mapuche communities have done is move in and um, you know, burned the, the plantations, both for questions of reasons of resurgence, but also as a kind of anti-colonial weapon. So what is this archive of the future then? Part of it is to kind of force us to confront and consider and perceive the violence of settler occupation and extractive capitalism. But part of the work here is also to steer us away from the oft-used human rights narratives, right? The paradigm of testimonial or direct address or limited renditions of the political. Instead, he's interested in a kind of surrealism, um, and he invokes dreams and prophetic visions, swapping formal linearity uh, and, why not say, expository clarity for more fragmented content. So what do we do with those fragments? How do we think about those fragments? And part of it, I think, is also that, um, and some people have asked me about this, well, of course, he's also drawing upon European traditions, right? Um, the kind of pre-Raphaelite image there of Ophelia and the kind of global preoccupation with water, with land, and the tragedy of Ophelia that's used in European critical contexts. But he's using it differently, I think, to draw attention to Spanish colonialism, to draw attention to British and US empire, and to think uh, outside of the fetishistic relationship that Chile has with English culture itself, and also to insert this immobile Ophelia figure as a kind of fabulation of, uh, of the melancholic that many of us are experiencing in relationship to the ecological. So this idea of the ecological degradation upon indigenous territories as also the dystopic future everywhere and for everyone. So how do we then read this image as a part of a kind of break with European um, representation, which I think he's interested in doing, okay? So that's part of the extractive zone that I wanted to bring forward, this kind of break with representation, the forms of experimentality, how to think about death and mourning from the kind of realm of the ancestors, and then what do we do towards a kind of constructive project as well in relationship to that. Um, so to me, Moving towards the third part of my talk, and I'll move through this quickly because I realize that um, I'm a little bit uh, over time, but I want to also give you an example of social movement, uprising, connection, and what I think is really important for us to think about um, as ways to you know, deoccupy or reoccupy or think differently um, you know, about the, the kind of space of the forest. So, I want to move to the example of um, Eastern Ecuador, and this also is to say, you know, this is what political struggle looks like upon those territories as well. It's not just the kind of state of mourning, but it's also a moment of political um, 
discussion, right, where people are being imprisoned, uh, seen as terrorists by the state, but what it means to seek justice and freedom for the political prisoners of Mapuches in this particular moment. So moving now to eastern Ecuador in the Yasuni area, um, What's important here is really uh, the kind of work that's been done by social movements to make Yasuni the center of a kind of global sim symbol for the radical reduction of biodiversity and what can be done now, right? So uh, the sliver of land is broadly considered the one that's highlighted there, Yasuni National Park, to be one of the world's most biodiverse regions. Um, literally thousands of species can be found there. And this is also an area, um, a, for, a forest area, the Amazonian Basin Forest Basin, where the Shuar and Quichua land defenders are literally the only obstacle course to the um, desperate companies who are trying to re uh, reach the below-surface deposits of petro-extractive reserves. So there's more than a billion barrels of oil that Chevron, Exxon, PetroChina, PetroEcuador, amongst dozens of other oil companies, have converted and would like to continue converting into hydrocarbons. Um, this is what a, another kind of mapping, to continue that thread in the, the talk where I'm thinking about visuality and mapping, this is what it looks like to divide up that kind of territory into oil blocks, right, um, as part of the extractive view um, and indigenous territories become oil blocks and what it means to reduce um, that view. And so to kind of counteract that, there's been a groups of people uh, in trying to create counter mappings, um, other showing the new ways in which road blocks, roads are coming in to create, uh, you know, interlinked spaces of oil territories. Um, and like doing this kind of counter mapping with satellite images becomes quite important. But what I really wanted to point to was the kind of work of Yasunidos. And I believe this is how we might think about the kind of future of the work that we need to do more of together. Um, by that I mean scholars, activists, artists, coming together, a group of middle um, you know, class young professionals, um, anarcho-feminists, um, all kinds of eco-feminists, uh, you know, people, indigenous uh, land defenders from across, um, you know, Quito, across Ecuador have come together to really say that we must fight together to create a physical sanctuary, a psychological space of um, respite from a climate change world. And how can we do that where questions of biodiversity can uh, thrive rather than be increasingly threatened, right? So part of that coalitional movement is really to think about Yasuni as our archive of the future. And our archive of the future is also um, about a really strong political statement. So I want to read the statement that Yasunidos has crafted because I think it's pretty powerful in relationship to these questions of how do we build trans communal solidarity? How do we build these kind of spaces of trans ge geographical uh, relations, right? Um, that work alongside indigenous rights and forest defense. Part of what they say then is, quote, for us, the initiative to leave the oil underground indefinitely should not respond to the whims of the international community or those of a government that has failed us by unidirectionally discarding the possibility of a serious public de debate about the alternatives for conservation. 
We, Yasunidos, demand respect for the human rights of the uncontacted peoples as guaranteed by Article 57 of the Constitution. We demand that our ancestral natural heritage is not sacrificed, and we opt for po post-oil alternatives. We urge for a truthful and transparent debate about our economic model and our energy base, and we demand that the government let us show our disagreement through le the legitimate exercise of protest without repression and criminalization. And I'm telling you this because and, um, it's not really translated online, so if you go looking online, it's hard to get it, but I do think it's important to s say part of what they're suggesting also is, quote, we are aware that more than one person has attempted to use our platform to their own advantage, so we want to clarify it for ourselves. We fight for life and an alternative to the extractive model. We are citizens, not only urban citizens. We are aware of the disasters that oil extraction generates for nature, humanity, and the economy with a strong belief that this is the moment to take the debate to the streets with the participation of everyone. We hope to overcome the oil dependency imposed on us that, moreover, further aggravates global warming, environmental destruction, puts the lives of people and voluntary isolation at risks and threatens not only the future of Ecuadorans but also that of humanity, end quote. So there's a way in which there's a real kind of sense of the seriousness of this moment of criminalization that they're experiencing, the kind of legitimate exercise of trying to protest without repression, as they suggest, and what it means um, to be engage in acts of radical land defense, right? So the social movements of um, art and land defense become pretty central here. So I want to bring this example because, I, like I mentioned, I think it's pretty essential for us to think with successful examples rather than just assume that everything has already been done and to kind of think about um, what Paulo Freire first called critical hope. and to think about engaging modes of perception and social movement and mobilization, again, from the South that can't be captured by a singular logic that actually needs different modes of, of thinking with it. So for me, this kind of proposal for alternatives is part of that, right? Um, a social revolution that challenges the values of energy consumption, the idea of thinking of post-extractive futures. Uh, and we have to do it very quickly, as many of you know. We're beyond the kind of tipping point in a lot of ways. So what it means to enliven critical hope, as Paulo Freire puts it in these particular times. So on that note, I just want to leave you with one final kind of powerful blessing series of images by uh, the Machi, who actually guides um, Francisco Wichegeo in all of his work. And this, I think, is a powerful example of another kind of visual archive um, to locate the shards of dystopian disaster and recenter it through her own embodied and cultural mediation. So let me show you that, that um, clip now. So when I show this clip to my undergraduate students, they say to me, but professor, nothing really happens here. And that's the point. Nothing happens. A temporal lag is there. This, this idea of the machi mediating and situating us in the river, allowing us to kind of form a haptic connection, an embodied connection to the surround. And this idea of kind of wading into the water and flowing to the other side of the colonial divide with the machi figure. So part of this work is to live with extreme conditions of violence and still 
think about the kind of healing practices or arts of land and water defense that include trying to shift our perspective, try to slow down our perspective into non-capitalist time. What does it mean to think about this kind of archive and to provide us with these kinds of images from deep within the heart of the occupied forest? And I'll let the river and the machi have the last sounds before Q&A. So I'm happy to also talk more about that clip if you all want to ask, but thank you for listening. That's the end of my presentation. So comments, questions, open to any impressions, parallel situations maybe. That's the question. Okay, um, uh, thank you so much uh, Macarena. Um, you, you mentioned it very briefly, but I wondered if you could say a few more words about this idea of archive of the future or for the future. Um, it's such an interesting concept and in relation to the, the film clip you showed us, the dystopian one, I, I just would love to hear you speak a few more words sort of explaining what that is and how we can use that as a sort of, um, uh, not rejection, but a sort of counter to the sorts of times and, and that we're in. Well, thank you for that. Um, I spend a lot of time in the book actually on this concept of the archive of the future, and I think part of it is really thinking about an experimental archive and what it means to actually um, experiment rather than put uh, that, you know, for Wichageo's work, he's not interested in going through the machine, running his films, say, through the machine of either human rights testimonials, as I mentioned, or um, a particular genre of what it means to be in a militarized state and the kind of documentaries that we know are out there and they're important ones uh, on the Mapuche um, issue um, and lots of anti-indigenous and kind of uh, war practices. So for him, rather than have that kind of archive, right, that's a, that falls into certain kind of traps of representation, he wants to suggest um, something more poetic, something that will actually speak to uh, Mapuche young people, and that's trying to kind of um, crisscross the, and, and include symbols that would be resonant with a Mapuche audience. So the archive of the future there is for to assuming and hoping that there will be a future generation of Mapuche, Mapuches that will at some point see the terrible conditions. So there's a kind of wish for a utopic future there. There's a wish for an outside of the colonial experience, um, and that's part of how he embeds uh, you know, and even in his filmic production, he's always thinking about that kind of audience. And what I think is so important there is the archive of the future. I mean, I guess a lot of, um, you know, there, there could be an elite archive that is about assuming, right, that you archive for a future moment to produce uh, your sense of um, entitlement to history. So the archive, I guess, is always future-oriented. 
Um, but I think this is a subaltern archive of the future, if you will, um, in a kind of extreme state of distress. Thank you. It's a great question. This is a comment. I just wanted to bring the hoop pine, the bunya pine, and the wallamai pine uh, into, the, uh, into the room tonight. Um, they are the relatives of the monkey puzzle tree. They are araucarias. They are um, our Australian araucarias um, from the times of Gondwana land when South America and Australia were uh, connected. The bunya pine in particular was the um, the, scent, the focus of um, an indigenous festival whenever it uh, uh, fruited, which wasn't every year, it was every two or three years. And eventually the, uh, the Bunya Festival was outlawed by the white colonialists because Aborigines were using that occasion to um, plan resistance and carry out resistance to the invasion of Australia. So I just wanted, because the monkey puzzle tree is so important to the Mapuches. I just wanted to add its relatives into this discussion tonight. Beautiful, thank you for saying so. I mean, I think what's really essential there is the viewpoint of the trees themselves as ancestors. So it's not just the human ancestors that are echoing in that kind of sound bridge, right? But the trees that are being eradicated and their spirit also not finding their location. So that's one piece. But then also the um, seeds that make a kind of daily flour and bread. And so there's literal starvation by indigenous Mapuches peoples in this eradication of the tree. So I think you're bringing something forward that's really important there to think about kind of continental interconnections and how a tree can be so central, right, to certain indigenous practices. So thank you very much. I'll kind of pursue that research as well. Maybe you can give me a few citations after. Thank you so much, Macarena. That was amazing. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, El Buen Vivir, uh, about Los Proyectos de Muerte, about um, the Brigada Feministas in Mexico. And um, sometimes I, I am problematized by the idea of presenting these examples outside of their context, because we, we avoid talking about the violence at some level. And, and the way that we present them, idealize them in a way that they are the future, they are the change, they are the ideology that we need to bring forward. Um, well, I don't know, it, it's like not making justice to the hundreds of years of violence, violence, displacement, dispossession that indigenous groups have suffered all over the world. So I'm thinking, like, have you, have you thought about that? Like, have you, um, engage with these ideas of, do we need to talk about them, but we also need to talk about how much suffering that represents mm -hmm. uh, for the people that are leading the movement. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, I think I did deal quite a bit with violence in those questions and really wanted to show that image of, um, of agency in relationship to, uh, you know, Mapuche mobilization in the face of political imprisonment. I think what's difficult is even um, considering what images to show and not to show. I've been working in the area of uh, state terror and memory for um, 
25 years now, and the question of representing violence is always one that's really important and troubling, especially in relationship to indigenous peoples. But I wanted to at least show you that sepia image, right, of the kind of 19th century wars on those territories and occupation, because it resonates for many, many more colonial images. I won't show you the catalog of images, but that one seemed to me is part of trying to unlock what it is that's really going on and how long it's gone on in relationship to those questions that I stated as ecocide, feminicide, and um, you know, genocide. Uh, I mean, you know, the other thing I'd say is that the representation of Latin America in an English context in even if we're in the global south here in the United States and Canada and the places that I've spoken and now Australia is complicated and it's rife with all kinds of problems of representations, etc. All I can say is that I try to um, situate myself in the work, uh, not maximally but minimally because it's not really about me but of course it's also through me. Um, and also the 10 years of field research in relationship to communities that I've done. And part of it is I do feel a certain kind of uh, burden of representation as, you know, in the U.S., for instance, as like uh, there's, I think, 1%, 1.5% of the tenured professoria is Latinx and even less of Latin American origin and even less of talking on indigenous issues. So. Um, while I'm not sure exactly there might be an overrepresentation in certain parts of the worlds in which you travel on, in the kind of the bigger world, I feel like the messages that are communicated through the machi, through Francisco's words, uh, trying to actually bring some of those techniques forward, I think is, is part of what I present to you humbly. And it's imperfect, um, but it's part of the mediation, the work I see myself doing as a mediator of sorts as well. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.